Rolling into May on this week's Riding the 3x3. I'm your host, Russ Heltman. Going to be joined shortly by my co-host, Patrick Fetch, on what is a draft recap episode and a Last Dance episode 3 and 4 wrap-up episode on Riding the 3x3. We're going to touch off the top on episodes 3 and 4 of The Last Dance. Michael Jordan the Chicago Bulls basing their biggest nemesis on their path to the six championships in the 1990s, those bad boys Pistons that bookended the Lakers-Celtics dynasty into the 1990s MJ dynasty. We'll also touch on the stories of Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, all that good stuff before heading into our winners and losers of the 2020 NFL Draft and wrapping it up with another list on this quarantine edition, keeping the quarantine theme going with our top three favorite auction items from the fan, the Fanatics list, headed up by Michael Rubin. Of course, you got giveaways from Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, all these exclusive types of deals that are going on on the auction website put up by Fanatics throughout these next couple weeks. Pat and I will close out the show with that. But first, let's get into this week's episode of a wrap-up theme on Riding the 3x3. Lane number one here on this week's episode of Riding the 3x3. I'm, of course, Russ Heltman, joined by my co-host, Patrick Fetch. Pat, tell me how you thought. How do you think the Steelers did this weekend and what was the first normal sports weekend it felt like in uh, in a year? That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, dude. It was a great weekend, wasn't it? I had an awesome weekend. It felt jam-packed with sports for the first time in what felt like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, man. The Steelers, it's whatever, right? They, it wasn't that in, impactful with draft. Didn't have that many picks. I, they they always know what they're doing with the wide receivers. And so I'm not going to sit here and bash it. As a Notre Dame fan as well, with the family connections to Notre Dame, I've seen Chase Claypool play quite a bit, and I've seen what he can do on those back shoulder throws, where he can contort his body. It's going to be exciting. I think he'll be, uh, who knows, he'll probably be a breakout star because the Steelers just know what they're doing, grabbing uh you know, wide receivers. It seems every like they year. See, every year in the yeah. second round, they get a wide receiver. It seems like they see him as more of a, like what Darren Waller is, did with the Raiders last year. Yeah. That's exactly the exact role. I think they're hoping for him to play. It's a sort of like a hybrid tight end or, you know, more of a slot, big body tight end type role, I think. And then just try to get those matchups on the outside every once in a while. But, um, yeah, I'm excited for him. How about you? What do you feel about your, uh, with your Bengals? It seems like you guys finally, Seems like something you can hold your hat on. Yeah, they pieced together a very nice draft, Pat. Of course, the the number one pick was a shoe-in with Joe Burrow, but then getting T. Higgins, a great jump ball receiver. He's performed yeah. on the biggest stage at the college level with the first pick in the second round. And then you follow up first pick day three, a guy at inside linebacker, Logan Wilson, who had 10 interceptions as a middle linebacker in college. You almost never see that kind of production in the passing game. And he's a really, really sound tackler. So I think they finally addressed that position of need very well. I was very happy with the draft. I thought it was a lot of fun, Pat. It was a little bit um, more depressing of a vibe than I thought we would get. Throughout Jeez. the entire broadcast with Jeez. the uh, with the different graphics and the musical performances were very uh, a little downtrodden. I th- kind of ho- thought they would try to be a little bit more of a, a nice release away from all the the bad stuff going on. But nevertheless, I'm not going to complain about any of it. I got some we got some good comedic relief with the Mike Rabel household. There was poop gate going on. Yeah, where we thought somebody might have been pooping on oh, the yeah. old uh, on the old throne. But it was really just a a. Uh, uh, a lacking of context clues or context given on that whole photo. That was interesting. And then the story of the entire Friday night of the draft, Bill Belichick's dog, Nike, 
Pat, that, that dog awesome. was a stud. Just making the out of nowhere pick of Kyle Duggar, the safety out of Lenore Ryan, the only <laughs> Division two player to uh, to get drafted out of this uh, this year's draft. It was a lot of fun. I, we of course had Roger Goodell with all the different outfit changes. He had the edible kick in uh, late yeah. Friday night, kicking back in the old lounger. That looked that like great. a very comfortable basement setup he had going on, Pat. Nice and humble. That was a good little man cave he had there. And mm-hmm. you're right with Goodell. You know, taking his edible, be nice and high, getting relaxed in his chair. And with Belichick just crushing his, those M&Ms. Yeah, yeah. And with us finding out that Belichick has an incredible taste in dogs, has an absolute gorgeous dog. I it was finding these evil people. It was like, you know, dark, being friends with Darth Vader, having having a beer with Darth Vader and be like, oh, this guy's pretty good. It was amazing how likable some of these NFL GMs, NFL personalities came off. That was, if only it wasn't for the vibe. Yeah, I don't know what the producers were thinking coming up with all of these tragic stories. And you brought up <laughs> T. Higgins. That was easily the most egregious example, I thought. The yeah. absolute out of left field, you know, the blindside haymaker at his mother for, you know, just no need for that. I don't understand who who the graphics guy was putting that one together, but that one yeah, was... I guess they tried to frame it as a good thing. You know, she fought and overcame drug addiction, which is something that you commend anybody if they're able to sure. uh, able to fight that disease and get over it. It but did yeah, come just off the, that they were airing some, like, dirty laundry. Though. Yeah, it did feel like a little bit of a cheap shot. So they did acknowledge it, too. Some of the higher-ups at ESPN said that they'll reevaluate how they do that for next year. But overall, just a great job under, under brutal circumstances – all the people that had to come into work and and just and and just get that done in, in really tough tough circumstances that we're all dealing with. So it's a, a big big hats off to them for helping take our minds off of some stuff throughout the weekend. We'll touch on all of our winners and losers in lane number two. But another thing that's been taking our minds off of uh, really 2020 and this entire millennia in general, we're going all the way back to the 80s and 90s with the Last Dance parts three and four, focusing on Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, and the whole battle. With the bad boys pistons. Pat, the three biggest things that stood out to me were A, Dennis Rodman probably could never make it in the NBA today. He would have been a massive headache <laughs> for any professional basketball coach, uh, let alone just anyone surrounding the game in the 2020s. B, Phil Jackson, I don't know if he could become a coach in today's NBA, seeing as where he came from. Of course, did play with the two time uh, NBA champion Knicks teams back in the 70s, but Coming all the way from those Puerto Rican coaching roots to the bench coach with the Chicago Bulls, that was quite the uh, glow up for Phil Jackson. And the number three, the Bad Boys Pistons. Not a lot of fans outside of the uh, Detroit area, to say the least. And not one of them at all is going to be Mr. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. He still hates the Detroit Pistons. Seems like Horace Grant, who uh, had a nice little them bitches quote waiting for us on the on the uh, program on Sunday night, still hates them. And basically the entire 90s NBA writ large hated the Detroit Pistons. And for good reason. They were a little bit of a dirty team, and they got to air out all of the dirty laundry on this week's episode. episodes, Pat. It was a little bit more spicy this week, this time around, and I was all for it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, so the Dennis Rodman point, I think he would have done fine in today's NBA. I think it's overblown how much people exaggerate whether he would like broken the internet. I could have, one... there was probably some tongue in cheek in there with yeah, all yeah. this. I think he would be stuff. I do, I do believe he'd be fairly well received though in today's world. I really do. I think it would be really entertaining. I think sports is almost waiting for another one of those, another one of those personalities that's also successful. I feel yeah, like that's the, the closest... challenge. 
parallel we have to Rodman lately? I guess it would be Ron Artest, Metal World Peace. That's probably yeah. the closest we've gotten in the NBA. Yeah, probably right. I can't really think of one. For some reason, Clay Thompson gives me a little bit of that energy, just, I think, with the lackadaisicalness and how he feels like he doesn't almost take it seriously. But we also know that his personality is much more cerebral than that. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I think Metal World Peace has got to be the closest example recently. And I think sports is is begging for another personality like that. I think it'd be awesome. I would definitely be a massive fan of, of a player like Dennis Rodman today. The total backstory with Rodman, on top of all the antics, Pat, was was mind-blowing in itself. The guy comes from the, the southeastern Oklahoma State or whatever, central Oklahoma, wherever NIIA school he came from, didn't play high school basketball, was homeless, and just started hanging around the, the, the basketball facilities, and the coach eventually was like, hey, come join the team. We'll see, we'll see what you got. Ends up being the 27th overall pick in the draft. And the most interesting part about Rodman, other than, of course, the whole Carmen Electra, yeah, yada, 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 anybody can go to Vegas and blow off their teammates and be a jackass. But the fact that he spent <laughs> so much time just devoting himself to the craft of rebounding. He basically formulated rebounding analytics before there were analytics in basketball when he was talking about the different spin rates off of jump shots from guys like Larry Bird all the way to Magic Johnson, the way he would just have people throw basketballs and miss shots for hours on end so that he could try to figure out the different angles that the ball would come off the hoop. That's why he is one of just, he is he's the only human ever with multiple 20 plus uh, rebound games and no points. It's the only, that's the reason why he was so committed to the rebounding facets of the game of basketball is because he was the ultimate team player and he truly just wanted to win. And he knew that the best way to do that was not to be an offensive guy, but to devote his athleticism to the rebounding facet of, of the sport. That was definitely the best clip, most entertaining clip of the of this this week. I think when he was trying to explain that, making all those noises, he's like, and then this way, that way. That was great. I absolutely enjoyed that so much. And yeah, it's weird because I don't know if we've ever seen like someone so dedicated to rebounding in today's game. And to go back and look at his numbers, it's ridiculous. You really, I had no idea until today that he was averaging 18 boards a game like 19 boards a game and six of six and a half of which were offensive rebounds imagine getting six and a half offensive rebounds a game every night for an 82 game season that's insane that's insane but moving i want to move deeper into this uh into this talk with you though because i had made a, a a comment last week where i called phil you know one of the more overrated nba coaches i think you took some offense to that And that Mm -hmm. might have been a little brash of me. I might want to walk that back a little bit. But he definitely was one of the more fascinating uh, pieces of this week. I was not aware of of the backstory of Phil and especially his roots in Puerto Rico. What a that was a crazy turn. I didn't really see that coming whatsoever, having not known his backstory. And he is so strange. They had the moment where they talked about him like doing acid and how that had like changed his his view and his Native American background. Yeah, they just kind of dropped that in and moved right yeah, along. Yeah. They're like, yeah, he tried acid once. <laughs> I mean, I need to see I need to see a much larger feature on Phil Jackson. He is like a Bill Walton if Bill Walton only did acid for like two years instead of thirty two years. You know, <laughs> it seems like he would be awesome. I need the two of them to sit down and have a great conversation. And I think something I don't know if I want to say that because I do think Phil is slightly overrated as an, you know, a basketball coach, but he might be underrated as just a leader of men. 
and someone who's able to understand different personalities, able to control these different egos and able to control so much tension, so much pressure, maybe just some, you know, disinterest and really just motivate in a whole different direction, really turn it on its head to, you know, a way that's successful in their goal at the moment. It is really fascinating to see how he was able to manage a lot of, uh, a lot of different players, and I think it's obvious why coaches like Kerr and Popovich are so successful now with how they handle players on their own team. They have to be looking to fill for inspiration. Seems like the first true, you know, great players coach in the NBA that helped mold egos and form stars, and you know, in the way of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. I think a lot of it's really interesting to see him. I'd love to see a deeper dive into, you know, a feature into Phil Jackson as a coach. Sign me up for a two-hour documentary on Phil Jackson. And, Pat, that's exactly the point I was trying to drive home last week, where any ex- you can be the greatest X's and O's coach of all time. And I put, I'd probably put Phil Jackson up there with anybody, with just the way he was able to institute the triangle offense into so many different playing styles with different superstar players over a 20-year run that he had winning those 11 titles. But it's also the fact that you can't get to a three-peat twice in a decade unless you are a great manager of personalities when you get to that third season game 81 you're just slogging along trying to get to the playoffs that that game four in round one against a team that you know you should beat against a team that you've probably beaten two or three times in the past playoff series alone and you have to figure out a way to keep those guys mentally sharp and ready to go because it's the NBA. It's the most talented league of basketball players in the in the world, and they are and they are just as hungry, if not more hungry, than the than the two time reigning or three time reigning champions are to get back to that mountaintop. So it's the ability to instill that type of wisdom and that type of cool, calm, collected, sharpened steel mentality that Phil Jackson was able to do, and the way he handled Rodman was a perfect example of it. I don't think any other coach in the NBA let alone the rest of the world coaching wise would have let their third best player leave during the middle of the season to go have a, have a bender in Vegas to get his mind right. But he knew that if he let Dennis do that, he would eventually come back. He would be stronger and more ready for the stretch run because of it. And that's a real contributing factor to why those bulls were able to complete not only one three peat, but two three peats with Phil Jackson at the helm. He definitely was an integral part. And you know, to the point, like Doug Collins clearly helped form Michael Jordan into the sort of apex predator he is. I think yes, Doug yes. Collins should be given that credit for putting the hand of Michael's you're putting the ball in Michael's hands every play and just being like, dude, win this game for us. Go out there and be the player you're meant to be, pretty much. And, and he then, needed that with that first yeah. round buzzer beater against Cleveland. That doesn't happen, I don't think, with Phil Jackson at the helm. It might have been John Paxson shooting that shot or something, not Jordan. Sure, sure. And then I think he, they need someone like Tex Winter who is able to you know, bring the principles of that triangle and really be the X and O's guys behind Phil. But to, to, to Doug Collins' point where he said, I could, I, I could see Phil come into my rearview mirror, basically. I knew he was next in line to be the coach. And I think that's really interesting because I can definitely see how people be gravitated towards Phil Jackson as a coach. He's definitely someone that I would want to play for. Um, especially when it's that easy, when you're that skillful and everything sort of runs like a well-oiled machine. You just need that focus, need that, 
that next gear at the coaching to keep that egos intact and everything. I thought that was awesome. I wish they went more into more into Phil, a little bit less into Rodman and the Bad Boys, just because I feel like I I've seen that story before. Yeah, and but, they already had done a thirty for thirty on Rodman himself. Right. So I would have liked. I would. I mean, I totally agree with you there. I would have much rather seen a little bit more Phil in that episode. Right, and then to my the last point that really stuck out to me in this week was. I didn't really know. So again, I don't know a lot about this dynasty. I feel like I'm not as well versed as I should be. I wish we got a little bit more of the story or at least a little bit more highlights in that 1991 finals between Lakers and Bulls. Mm -hmm. Because when I think about those two teams, those are two completely different eras. And when I think about Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, in my head, Michael Jordan dominates that one-on-one matchup. So it'd have been interesting when they said, you know, that Magic was sort of getting the best at Michael a little bit. I wish we could have gotten some more highlights. I'll definitely have to go back personally, watch some of those games and see just how those two teams matched up because that doesn't even feel like the same, just not even the same game. I'd, I'd actually really recommend you checking out, and anybody listening to this right now, check out game three of the uh, 91 finals and then go back and listen to um, – Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosillo, they're doing this whole rewatch of Bulls podcast thing where they're breaking down some of the old finals games with this Jordan run. And that was the first one they started off with. It's a really, really cool, just kind of mind-blowing dynamic just as a basketball fan watching the the kind of patriarch of that era, Magic Johnson, go up against the young up-and-coming prince, so to say, for the new era in, in Michael Jordan. And Magic Johnson... Still, even 11 years into his career, he still got his fastball. That dude was throwing 96 in that series, but they were just a little bit too undermanned against that hungry, hungry Bulls team looking for their first title. And the team that they had to go through to get to that 91 finals, Pat, those bad boys Pistons, throughout the final years of the 1980s, they were the ones that ended the major, major runs by the Bird and those 80 Celtics. And they were the ones who stif- stif- or stifled Michael Jordan and those Doug Collins Bulls teams. I thought, and I want to focus on this, the whole non-handshake thing on the, uh, at the end of the 91 Eastern Conference Finals, I thought it was a little bit Bush League by the Detroit Pistons. And I thought it was really, it was really revealing that they didn't even believe it was right for them to do it themselves because the only way they could defend it and the only way that any of them have defended it over the past couple of days with some uh, post-documentary interviews that I've seen on ESPN and other mediums is the fact that, oh, well, the Celtics, when we beat them in 80, in uh, 88, they didn't shake our hands, so we just thought we would do the same thing. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Like, you're not the Celtics. The year before, Michael Jordan fell to you in the exact same fashion that you fell in this series, and he shook y'all's hands. So y'all, it, it's just common sportsmanship, and it's just hilarious and kind of refreshing that to this day, Michael Jordan, Horace Grant, the rest of that crew just despise those bad yeah, boy pistols. It didn't bother me too much just because I love that animosity. I love mm-hmm. the genuine it was genuine. It was why I do I have to shake that their hands? Too. Yeah. Right. Like why do I have to shake their hands? You beat us. Cool. You know, and celebrate, enjoy your win. G- good luck. Whatever. Like I'm off. I'm gone. Off season starts. Now is my vacation time. I didn't hate it too much. I don't know. I don't think I would hate it too much this day at all. Um different time. I I don't know. I that, I thought it was fun. I loved it. 
Cannot wait to see what we get in episodes five through six, Pat. I'm hoping that we start to lift the curtain a little bit more on this 97-98 final season. I think we're going to start to get more of that. We're going to get some more of the gambling stories. That's the biggest thing that I'm not very privy to. I knew a lot of this stuff coming out of, Mm -hmm. even coming out of episode four. Did not know Phil Jackson did acid. That was news to me. Did not know (laughs) he, uh, he had the mayor of the Puerto Rican town he was playing in kill a chicken and like and release the blood on the bench before a game did not know that's part of phil jackson's story but the rodman stuff i was pretty uh pretty well glossed on but these next six episodes i'm really excited to I see am. what they can cook up that i that i haven't seen yet and what's going to really surprise the public at large i'm all aboard the conspiracy that mj's two-year hiatus was more of a under the radar you know brushed under the rug suspension for gambling and some poor it's fun to think of it that way for sure i think it's the only way that really makes a whole bunch of sense but obviously michael was probably just bored he was just beating up the league but i'm all aboard that conspiracy theory so i'll be interested to see how they angle it and and how uh and how they tell that story because i agree with you i'm not I'm not too well versed on that that side of the story either. Hopefully, we get the uh, the actual grainy, finer details from the man himself, the cigar smoking, Hennessy drinking, greatest <laughs> player to ever touch a basketball, Mr. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Let's get into some draft classes that these respective NFL teams are hoping to be their greatest draft class of all time. Pat, some winners and losers of the 2020 NFL draft. Let's start positive. We'll start with some winners. And I will go off the top with the Dallas Cowboys. They're sitting there at pick number 17. Good old Jer Bear sitting in his $250 million yacht off the coast of, who knows, some kind of white sanded blue or emerald blue beach. And who falls to them? At 17, Pat, a stud DeAndre Hopkins-esque receiver out of the University of Oklahoma won C.D. Lamb, a guy who you had as your number one receiver on the entire 2020 NFL draft board. That would have given them an A-minus just off the top for me, just being able to sit at 17 and get arguably a top seven, top eight player in the entire draft class. But then they go on and they just knock it out of the park with the rest of their draft, Pat. I loved getting Trevon Diggs at pick number 51. He was Mel Kuyper's number third or excuse me, number three ranked cornerback in his, in the entire draft. He was a nice, nice pickup at 51, arguably could have gone in the top 32 in that first round. They get Neville Gallimore at pick number 82. I loved what he brings to the table out of Oklahoma as well. Defensive tackle, six foot two, 304 pounds. He had an 84 overall grade, according to Scouts Inc., sixth at his position, and he was the 49th ranked overall player. They get him at 82. That's great value. And then Reggie Robinson, the, th- the second as well. I really like what he can do as the at the cornerback position. I think he's going to really help fill the gap that Byron Jones is leaving. And then Bradley and I, that was Mel Kuyper's steal of the draft out of the day three out of the day three portion. He had him ranked 89th overall on his board. He went 179th. And then also. They get the center out of Wisconsin, Tyler Bidaz, who I was kind of hoping my Bengals would be able to pick up in the fourth round. He's going to step in and replace Travis Frederick. Pat, I think they filled the legitimate holes that they had on their roster at the most key spots, and they also drafted for great value in guys like CeeDee Lamb and Neville Gallimore, along with plugging that cornerback hole with Javon Diggs and Reggie Robinson. I'd give the Dallas Cowboys a solid A with this draft, and boy, oh boy, are they going to be fun to watch on offense. I, I talked about it last week. I'm absolutely in love with CeeDee Lamb. 
I am so in love with CeeDee Lamb. I think he could be better than DeAndre Hopkins. He has this rare... He's just so big, and he's so athletic. He's so smooth. His route running... His route running may not be pure. It may not be perfect, but he just gets where he needs to be. He gets that separation. He he seems like he has a very good understanding of maybe not what the you know not exactly what the route should look like, not the perfect steps, but where he needs to be at what time and how he needs to angle his his guy to get open. I love watching him play. I've watched CD Lamb highlights all weekend. He's going to be incredible. That just is imagine be him awesome against offense, the nickel man. corner for all 32 just, NFL teams. It's just yeah. going to be unfair, Pat. It's going to be legitimately unfair with Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup taking up the top two corners on the other team. He's he's already the best wide receiver on that team, I think. Oh, sounds gauntlet. I like it. I think he's better than Amari Cooper. I think he's. I think his ceiling is much better than Amari Cooper. And you we know what? By week four, wanna... he could be getting shadowed by the number one corner. That's very possible. You're right. You're right. I don't, we have to see him on an NFL field because I, I'm in almost too much in love with him. It almost worries me that he dropped to somehow the number third receiver. But then again, it was like the Raiders, Jerry Judy going to spot above him. You can't really blame that. I think they're well, very much the speed, baby. They fall in love with it yes. every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that being said, um, I love C.D. Lamb. I think I think you're right. The Cowboys are definitely a huge winner. Getting getting talent from from Alabama and Oklahoma and those top schools is never a bad idea. So I'm, I'm with you. I think they had a really good draft. And I think when you can add a playmaker like CeeDee Lamb on that offense, Dak really has no excuse now, but they should, they should be amazing on offense next year. The defense is definitely a question mark, but that offense fully expected to be right up near the production level it was this year. And hopefully they're able to punch it into the end zone and some more red zone tries as they were pretty abysmal in that fashion last season. And they also, Pat, no longer have the Jason Garrett storm cloud hanging over their heads. This has been one of the more talented rosters across the board over the past decade. It's just been countless, countless on countless head-scratching mistakes and head-scratching moves coaching-wise by Jason Garrett. We'll see if Mike McCarthy can help well some of that. Your biggest winner of the 2020 draft. Okay, my biggest winner... Um, I'm going with another perennial disappointment who I think did really, really well this draft. And that's the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Brownies. I'm giving them an A. So if you look at the Browns, one thing that they did last year, right, is they hoarded a bunch of talent. They got OBJ. They got Kareem Hunt. They got guys, real splash players, talented guys, NFL superstars, potentially, you know, or have been. But they didn't not really good culture guys. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna vote Kareem Hunt your team captain. You're not gonna look at OBJ in uh, you know times, um, you know in in adverse times to to lead you out of it. However, they did a really 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 good job in this draft. I think of not only addressing some needs and getting some very skillful guys, but also drafting for character. They got a lot of just really, really strong guys, you know, uh, leaders from their college teams, captains from their college teams. It started with their first pick, Jedrick Wills, who I think is a safe pick. It's an easy pick. They needed to get that O-line better. They needed one of those top O-line prospects. They went out and got it. Got an Alabama guy, you know, a three-year starter, I believe. So, fine pick. Then they went out and got Grant Delpit, who by most accounts really was one of the leaders on that LSU team, especially in that LSU secondary. Really controlled everything for that team. I think is a, a really, really great pick. I think his size and his speed may be a little bit questionable. I don't know how agile he'll be able to be. 
he might need a couple of years to really get used to the speed of the NFL, but I really like him. They go and get Jacob Phillips, another linebacker from LSU. And then a steal of the draft, I think, Donovan Peoples-Jones out of Michigan. You know, he had some of the worst quarterbacks I've ever seen play college football. And especially, I mean, saying something for Big Ten football, it was terrible, even in uh, comparison to other Big Ten quarterbacks. But his athleticism is so out of this world. I think he can be much more productive when he has a real quarterback throwing him the ball. I think that the Browns had a great draft, and I think they're starting to build that culture. They finally got new guys in there. This was a culture draft for them, and they did really well getting value and getting skilled, too, when they really needed to build that foundation of the team. So I think they did a great job up in Cleveland. Pat, if this team can't make the playoffs this year, it's never going to happen. Let's be honest. It is never going to happen. You just made the coaching change. You just upgraded at your two just by far weakest spots on the entire roster, your right and left tackle positions on the offensive line. Of course, get Jack Conklin on the right side and the guy you just mentioned, Jedrick sure. Wills, who is who is basically it was a toss up between that trio of Thomas, Wills, and Becton for the number one overall tackle prospect. And you can kind of just throw a dart and pick whatever one out of that three. You can't go wrong I agree. either way. And the fact that they get Grant Delpit, who going into the college, going into the season last year, he was arguably a top fifteen pick, and oh, I yeah. think he uh, he started seeing old uh, old Benjamin Franklin coming down the line, and he was like, "Ooh, might need to uh, might need to make some business decisions on Saturdays here." Maybe so that was it. Health. Yeah, but maybe that was it. It ended up getting him down to the to the second round of the forty fourth overall pick. So I don't know how great those business decisions were, but a great value nonetheless for the Cleveland Browns. And they they get an immediate starter there. They get the immediate starter in Jedrick Wills. I think Harrison Bryant can be a really big part of this offense year one. The tight end they drafted in the fourth round out of Florida Atlantic. They're going to really want to run a lot of two tight end sets, similar to what Kirk Cousins. And the uh, and the Minnesota Vikings did last year with Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith. We're going to see a lot of that this year with Austin Hooper and Harrison Bryant, and also David and Joku as well. So, yeah, I I have no qualms with this draft class. To me, the only thing keeping the Browns from being a playoff pick right now for me today is the fact that it's the Cleveland Browns, similar to how I thought of them That's- last year. When they were That's, the entire hype train for the whole season. And I said, nope, they're going to go 6-10, and ten, which I have now. A 6-10, and ten, Pat, is now the Cleveland Brown. That's what it's called. When you go 6-10, and ten, <laughs> it's called the Cleveland Brown. Because it seems like they have done that in eight of the past 20 years, going all the way back to 1999 when they came back. But there is no excuse this season, especially for right. Baker Mayfield. It is all set up for Baker to play really great football and lead this team to a playoff berth. And if he doesn't, then it's either because he's not good or these these tube signings, either Conklin craters after a career year going into a contract season last year. And Jedrick Wills just isn't very good because outside of that, I don't see how this team isn't going to be very productive on offense. And once again, very solid on defense with Miles Garrett coming back into the fold after a couple weeks suspension. Yeah, I don't know if they'll make it this year. Obviously, that seventh seed is going to be huge for him. But within the next two years, I'm a believer in Chicago or in Cleveland. I really am. I don't know how big of a believer I am in an OBJ. I really think he's almost like he'd be an addition by subtraction for that team almost. I think they just need to to refocus that offense on that run game on Jarvis Landry, who could be a star. I mean, he's been a star for that team. And I think they did. I just think they think they did a good job with their culture. They need to build something, a winning culture there with guys who believe that come in together. I think they did a good job. So I'm excited for them. Um, who do you guys your loser? My loser in the 2020 draft, Pat, 
is going to be the Las Vegas Raiders. You might, might as well call them the Clemson Buckeyes <laughs> because that's what they seem to draft every single year. And once again, they did it last year with Cleveland Farrell, who had a decent rookie season, but he wasn't top five pick material, which is what they ended up making him last year. This year, they go up and get Damon Arnett with the 19th overall pick. Now, they didn't trade up to get this guy, but he was, I think, maybe a top 70 prospect. Maybe. He's a solid player. He doesn't really test out very uh, eye-poppingly in terms of his his athletic testing scores. He, he does do some nice stuff in the coverage game. He's a nice tackler. He's basically just solid. He's a C-plus all around, and that's not necessarily what I would have selected with the first uh, first round pick there, though I guess seeing as they didn't have another selection until pick 80, you want to get your guy, you go ahead and do that. But you got to think somebody would have given you something to trade up to number 19. And then they go and take Lynn Bowden Jr. and Brian Edwards, 80th and 81st. They draft two wide receivers, one of which Lynn Bowden. I'm not very confident John Gruden's going to be able to access the entire Swiss Army knife he has at his disposal athletically. And on top of that, they had already spent their first overall pick on Henry Ruggs, who is by and large the third best receiver on everyone's board this year. He's one of those speedster type guys, sub four, three forty, who I guess you could come up with the idea that he can be a Jerry Rice, not necessarily to no, I'm not comparing him to Jerry Rice, but the way that the Niners use Jerry Rice with those, those slant routes and those drag routes, getting him in space and then letting him hit the burners to get upfield. They can kind of use them like that with how accurate Derek Carr is. But man, you'd if I'm Henry Ruggs or or anybody else that's a football fan, I'd much rather see him play with a deep ball type thrower that can get him going down the field. So overall, that was really weird to me. And then the only real pick I liked out of this entire draft, which ended for them in the fourth round, was their final pick, Amik Robinson. I thought he was wildly underrated. He had 14 interceptions in college coming out of Louisiana Tech, and he was easily the best player available for almost 40 picks. So that was a nice selection. But other than that, Pat, I did not understand a lick really anything that they were doing outside of the hope that Henry Ruggs can be a drag route and go type of guy for Derek Carr. I'm not surprised whatsoever that Gruden and Mayock are the two that seem just lost. They're on a different path than everybody else. That's not surprising, but I don't really know what they're doing. Like what is, what is their ultimate goal? It seems like they're trying to simplify the whole draft you know, take great players who played well at great schools. Okay. Like, seems easy enough, but it it can't be that simple. Do they and just turn proven. on the tape on January I, I 9th? Do they turn yeah. on ESPN and on January 9th at 8 o'clock and just say, oh, there's our uh, there's our draft board right there playing on the national championship exactly. game? Like, and it's like if you're using the eye test, you, you think about it. Derek Carr is a terrible deep ball receiver, and you just drafted a guy – who's going to get 40 yards downfield before Derek Carr is able to open his eyes and see him. It's So it doesn't really make sense. I don't see Derek Carr being able to push the ball downfield and complete passes to Henry Ruggs. So I guess they're just going to hope that Henry Ruggs can catch, yeah, I mean, two-yard passes and take him to the house the whole time. And it's like, I, why are you using three picks, three premium top 85 picks on receiver? I get that that's an area of need, but you don't need three of them. You need help along a lot of other positions. And look where they got value last year from wide receiver. Darren Waller, who was an out, you know, casted away from the NFL. And then Hunter Renfro, who was he drafted or was he an undrafted free agent? He was sixth round pick, I think, sixth last round. year. Another, so another were, Clemson guy. There you go. Yeah. And so they were able to get value from, from these receivers that they, you know, picked out of the trash can, basically. And then, yeah, they, they spend these 
premium picks on him when, yeah, I don't think Derek Carr is the one. Obviously, this is Derek Carr's year. If he can't get it done with the weapons that they're giving him, then he's never going to have a chance in the NFL. But um, you're right. I don't really know what they're doing. They're they're zigging when everyone else is zagging, and sometimes that works out. So I don't want to write them off completely, but conventional wisdom, I feel like anymore, does tell you that they're just they're just missing the board. And it's just it's the end of the Khalil Mack trade as well. That Damon Armet pick was the last pick out of the Khalil Mack trade, and so now. You're you're working with Josh Jacobs and Damon Arnett are your two marquee pieces out of trading away arguably the best defensive end in the entire NFL. And I get you saved a lot of money not having to pay him the big deal, but they're still Pat searching desperately for consistent defensive pressure against the quarterback, and they just haven't been able to find it. And they didn't obviously obviously didn't address it here, seeing as they took three wide receivers, two corners, a safety, and a guard. So very weird draft out of Las Vegas Raiders. Who do you have as your biggest loser before we get to Jordan Love heading to Wisconsin? Pat, who you got? Yeah, okay. So I I'd spoken about this team before. Um, my biggest loser, I'm going with the Carolina Panthers. Um, I just don't really understand what they're trying to do in the Carolina right now. Draft. Yeah, the all defense draft. Uh, I spoke about it last week too. I'm uh, the other guy, not CD Lamb. The other guy I'm obsessed with in this draft is Isaiah Simmons. And for the Panthers, who had just lost Luke Keekley, um, is Thomas Davis? Is he gone now, or is he's getting up there in age? Nonetheless, Davis is gone. Yeah, he played. Davis I think he played for the L.A. last year. I'm pretty sure. Chargers. Okay, he was. He was with the Chargers last year. So they've, you know, so I look at teams like uh, the Ravens. We didn't speak about the, you know, talk about the Ravens, but the Ravens had a great draft. And it seems like why the Ravens always have a great draft is they just have a blueprint, right? It seems like they never have to make tough decisions because when their pick comes up. It's just an obvious, there's an obvious blueprint. There's a guy on the board that you see, and he's just, okay, that's a Raven. That's the guy they're going to get. And it happened with Patrick Queen. Um, I forget who their second-round pick, but, you know, it happened even with Lamar Jackson. I felt that same way. And it's happened so many times in the past where they just get guys that fall in their lap, and it works out perfectly for them. Okay, so you look at a team like the Panthers, who have, have been somewhat successful with with a certain formula of getting great linebackers who can go sideline to sideline. You know, they've had some great running backs. They've kept that tradition up. And, you know, they've gone out and got this new wide receiver. It, new, they got went out and got this new quarterback, and they didn't give him a single weapon of the greatest wide receiver draft we've ever had. And they didn't give Joe Brady, this new offensive coordinator, this offensive mastermind, they didn't give him any new weapons to work with out of this prized wide receiver group who maybe have seen his sort of I just it doesn't make any sense to me why they uh they beefed up a defense in ways that they didn't really need it like they didn't address the biggest need I felt like which was at linebacker when they had a chance to get such a versatile guy a sideline to sideline guy I just this draft doesn't really make all that much sense to me um do you have any opinions on this draft because I don't really know what they're doing, not giving Matt Rule, not giving Joe Brady, Teddy Bridgewater any more help. I mean, it's going to be Christian McCaffrey, a one-man show. He's going to have to carry the ball 60 times, and I don't think you want to do that when you just sign the guy to a huge extension as well. I could see where you can pan this draft a little bit, seeing as they went seven picks and took seven defensive players. But I'm not going to say it was a bad draft. I think defense was obviously their biggest factor in going what six and 10 last year, five and 11. 
And the fact that you gave up 5.2 yards per carry, that was by far the worst in the NFL. They had to shore up the interior of that defensive line. And yeah, Isaiah Simmons is a great athlete, but I don't think he's that kind of guy that's going to sit there and play middle linebacker for you and be able to stuff the run consistently. He's a guy that I'd much rather have as an Ed Reed type of center fielder where I have him roaming around, creating mismatch issues, and really being a bit even bigger factor in the passing game. So I, I did like the addition of Derek Brown. I thought he was easily the best defensive tackle in this class. He's a tick short talent-wise of a guy like Aaron Donald, but I think he can really, really pair well with Kwan Short on the interior of that defense. That's really going to make the interior a big, big, massive upgrade the from way last the season. NFL. The way the NFL is played anymore, though, it seems insane that you would want another D lineman to plug the run when teams are throwing the ball 60 times a game. And you can get you know, some guy who does both, can play 40 yards down the field and can play 10 yards in the backfield. Not to mention the quarterbacks in your division are three MVP winners and you know, maybe three Hall of Famers. I don't know what Matt Ryan's future holds, but... Right? Brown, well, Brown's not... He, he's not Vince Wilfork out here like the guy can still get some disruption in the passing game I I, I I anticipate we see more of that in uh in his first couple of years in the NFL than we saw in Auburn just because of the way they used them but I, I have no qualms with that pick I can totally see where it's a to- I, to me it's a toss-up between Derek Brown and Isaiah Simmons at, at seven and eight but he, he had four sacks last year at Auburn he had four sacks the year before that at Auburn I That's get pretty that good he's... for a D tackle I, but in college, right? Like, I don't know if that makes him, I mean, maybe he'll be more disruptive. Maybe his role will change in an NFL line. A, a coach gives him differently, but I don't know. I guess you're right. Drew Brees, Tom Brady, they are 43 years old. Them throwing the ball 50 times a game isn't going to be a recipe for many victories for their teams. And then Teddy that, Bridgewater got the bulky knee. He's not necessarily, uh, he's not necessarily Lamar Jackson out there scrambling around. Right. So I would just it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It seems like in in a world where you could get a guy like that, like Simmons, who can stretch the field, defend in so many different versatile ways. And for you to take a, a D lineman, you know, a 350 pound guy who's going to have his hand in the dirt and never be between five yards on a field is insane to me. I, I want the guy who can go sideline to sideline. I want the guy who can guard every position on the field. They showed the chart of all the positions he had played throughout the season, and yeah. that was it was amazing. He had played basically a third of the snaps in every single tier of the defense. I I was obsessed with him, and for him to have fallen to the Panthers and then to just pass on him, I thought was insane. And that's why I think they're the loser. And Joe Brady, there was just so much talent. There was so much they could have built on that offense and really given Teddy Bridgewater a fighting chance, which I don't think he's going to get right now. I just don't see how that offense is going to be able to produce anywhere near to enough for that team to be competitive. Well, to me, it speaks to their thought process similar to what the Bengals think with their offensive line, which is the fact that they are relying on the young players to develop guys like Curtis Samuel, guys like DJ Moore taking that next step. And I, and if you're a talent evaluator and a one that trusts their own judgment, which is what GM Marty Herney really does in this situation, he's going to trust the, the picks that he made in the past couple of years, addressing the offensive side of the ball with the weapons and stuff like that. It is very weird that they went seven picks and seven defensive players. And I can't fault you for, for saying this is a misdraft. If you really are, you're you are a huge Simmons guy, and I can fully respect that. And if you're a giant Simmons guy, then you're going to obviously think there's a big gap between him and Derek Brown. But aside from Brown, I think the year term Gross Matos pick out of Penn State in the second round, I thought he easily could have been 
the second or third first round defensive end taken behind uh, Caleb on Chasen. And then Jeremy Chin out of Southern Illinois. He's a nice FCS player out of the second round. The, both those players that they took in round two, I think are going to be starters early on. And then they take Kenny Robinson out of the out of West Virginia. He played in the XFL last year. He's already got some professional experience. So they shore up the safety spot, and they get Troy Pride Jr. as well in the middle. He's a really, really quick corner, got nice ball skills. He's number 86 in, uh, in Mel Kuyper Jr.'s rankings. He falls all the way to 113. So I thought they, they picked for very nice value, and they didn't make any reaches. So it was tough for me to make them a big winner out of this draft. And so, and and just keep them more in the middle portion. But I can see you being a sim, big Simmons guy, and them passing up on him. That can shift this thing down to the uh, the and misses say, on your portion. Yeah, and to say one more thing, I I'll be honest. I did have some trouble finding a lot of losers in this draft because, because of the caveat that we're about to get to, right? Yeah, yeah, and and because. It was such a good draft, right? I think there was value up and down the board to get. And so I didn't find a lot of big, big losers because I feel like it was it was hard to lose in this draft. Um, yeah, that being said. Jordan Love, Pat, the Packers. Can you explain it to me? Can you explain can you explain not only just the Packers and Jordan Love in the first round, but the ensuing rounds following that, where they uh they took a wide receiver in the second round, right? Nope, nope, they took a running back. Wait, Pat, they took uh they had to have taken a wide receiver in the third round, right? All they had last year was uh, was Devontae Adams, another fellow third-round receiver. It would be a match made in heaven, right, Pat? They had to take No, no, they took a tight end, a tight end out of, out of, out of Cincinnati, Josiah DeGuara. Wait, Pat, so you're telling me they didn't wait to take a receiver until the fifth round or later? Yeah, I'm telling you that because they didn't take a wide receiver at all. They went linebacker, guard, center, offensive tackle, safety, defensive end to round out what was a head scratching and albeit just the definition of the word punting on this current iteration of the Green Bay Packers because they have not even tried to assemble any type of outside talent around one Aaron Rodgers. So I wanted to defend this draft because I like to defend teams that are just so much against the grain, which mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to defend the Raiders. Like, when they do something that seems so wrong, they must have some other information, right? Like they must be right. They must see something that everybody else doesn't. They must love Devin Funches, Pat. Devin Funches <laughs> must be the second coming of Randy Moss in this in a Green Bay Packer uniform. That's the only explanation I have. I don't get. I just. It seems like with the ownership is giving Matt Lafleur just complete, complete control over this franchise in the future, right? It seems like that it has to be the ownership that's almost given up on Aaron Rodgers. Am I wrong? It, well, and it looks to me like Matt LaFleur looked across the sideline in that just 25-point demolishing they took at the hands of the San Francisco 49ers in the NFC title game, and he thought, man, this is what my offense is supposed to look like. It's supposed to have a quarterback that you can't quite think you can rely on. It's supposed to have three running backs that we can run outside zone schemes with and really just widen up the whole field. It's supposed to have motion left or right, stuff like that, and I don't have that right now, and I really want it. So I'm going to go throw away the greatest thrower of the football in, in NFL history in the back end of his, of his prime and just say, hey, let's flip it on its head. Let's zag when everybody's zigging, and let's run the ball when we have Aaron Rodgers instead of putting the ball in his hands more often. That it seems works. amazing to me. It works for him last year when they were running the ball. And I, w- I am going to say that. I don't know if the Packers were as good as everyone is trying to make them out to be last they year. They were not. Okay. They were not. Fine. Third. 
They were the worst 13 and three team I've ever seen. Exactly. And fine. They went to the conference championship, but the Seahawks were a better team and the Seahawks just did not perform well. Right. That, that whole team was on the back of, of Russ Wilson. They had to play the wild card game too. They didn't look good in that game either. I don't think this Packers team was necessarily that good. They, they didn't have any running backs too, didn't they? They had to sign Marshawn Lynch off the street, right? right? Exactly. Cause Chris Carson and Rashad Penny went down. Exactly. And so I think that them making this far last year was just a product of a weak NFC. And it doesn't really, you know, look like it's going to shape out exactly like that. You obviously think the Rams have to improve just a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's the, the Packers look like they're planning for the future. Like they're planning for the next Packers team. And it seems weird because it feels like... I don't know. It seems like that doesn't make you know. any sense, Pat. The name of the game is to win Super Bowls. That's what right. we pay tickets for. That's what we all wake up at 6 a.m. to go watch tape for is to win the damn Super Bowl. And they aren't doing that. They aren't maximizing it at all. Guess how many touchdowns, Pat, Aaron Rodgers has thrown to not just first round picks of his own team, but just first round picks at all in his career. Guess how many? I have no idea. One. He's thrown wow. one touchdown pass to a first-round pick, and that was Mercedes Lewis, I think, last season, 2019. So it's wow. just mind-blowing to me that the Packers, who have had the best quarterback talent in the league up until Patrick Mahomes showed up for a better part of a decade, have done nothing to surround him with premier talent on offense. Over the past three years, the only good receiver he's had is Devontae Adams. And on top of that, not only do they draft a quarterback, but they give up a fourth-round pick to trade up to draft the quarterback, who not only won't start this year, but, Pat, there's no way he's going to start next year because the cap hit is an absolute nightmare if they tried to force Rodgers out. So you're giving up three years, potentially, out of a four-year rookie contract, which is the most valuable thing in sports and is the reason why the Chiefs won last year, is the reason why the Rams went to the Super Bowl the year before, is the reason why the Eagles won the Super Bowl the year before that. It's because of these short, cheap contracts, i.e. Joe Burrow being paid the 28th highest cap hit this year as the number one overall pick. That's the reason why these teams are able to put together great loaded teams full of talent outside of their rookie quarterback. And then they go and not only just it would have been it would have been fine I think if they addressed receiver in the second round and still taken love took love first with their first pick. But the fact that they draft not only not a receiver pat but a running back in the second round and a running back in AJ Dillon who yeah, nice player, solid player. Not a top five running back in this class. Not even close. And what is he going to do, Pat? All he's going to do next year is take snaps away from Aaron Jones, who is arguably a top five running back in the NFL. I can't even contain myself. This makes no sense. You're right. The more you think about it, the harder it is to justify, especially when you go through those logistics with Jordan Love. I mean, he'd have to be... As good, he has to be one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And the best case scenario for the for the Packers is if Jordan, you should the best case scenario, Pat, for your first round pick should not be hoping he doesn't ever play. You know, does that make sense to you? Because it doesn't make sense to me. They should hope he never plays. They should hope Aaron Rodgers plays at an MVP level till twenty twenty three, which is when his contract expires. Yeah, the more you dive into it, the worse the worse it feels. I want to defend it because it feels like, okay, Jordan Love. I mean, look at what happened to Rodgers. It's almost a similar situation. 
But yeah. Oh man, that just makes absolutely no sense. Packers by far get the get the biggest loser nod of this draft. It's the, the reason that Pat and I picked the Raiders and the Panthers is because I I, I made the distinct distinction that we had to uh, touch on the Packers separately because they would have easily been the biggest loser out of this draft. Yeah, they're definitely just the biggest anomaly. So we're gonna find out just how big of losers they become. But they're definitely they're definitely throwing um, the biggest risk out there. They're throwing the biggest hand, the biggest bet down. So we'll see if it works out for them. No doubt, no doubt about that, Pat. All right, quarantine list. Another edition this week for lane number three. Our top three fanatics auction items on the All In Challenge at fanatics.com. You can just Google it, All In Challenge. You can see what all the auctions are. And I kind of did my top three with just no, if there was no monetary value involved, just what sounds the coolest. So I'll go with my top three. We'll start with number three. We'll go uh, in snake draft order. My number three pick is the World Series viewing game. Watching the World Series game with Bob Costas and Al Michaels. I think this sounds like an absolute electric factory me being a, a huge sports media guy, I just love all the ins and outs of it. I would love to know uh, what prompted NBC to even think they could trade Al Michaels in the in this this previous <laughs> couple months uh, a couple months soap opera that was going on. You get four guests to go along with you to be able okay. to do the dinner. So I'd probably bring you, Pat. We'd we'd, we'd boost yes. up riding the three by three. Yes, works in that sense, just to get the uh, get the ears on riding the three by three of those two greats. And it'd just be amazing, just picking the picking the brain of the guys that have been around some of the best events in sports history. Al Michaels doing all the Super Bowls. Al, he's done a couple NBA Finals. He, of course, did the Miracle on Ice, and then Bob Costas with the Olympic experience. Just it would be it would be the fastest dinner in the history of my life because it would just be so much fun. It would go by in the blink of an eye. And that's my pick for number three. Who you got for number three? Yeah, that's a great one. So number three, um. I'm just going with my my first pick because I think you're going to steal it. So I'm going to act like I got to save it. I'm going with the golf with Peyton Manning. It's currently currently going for over half a million dollars. I think it's and you that can, and the Brady experience are the two most expensive right now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to steal this Peyton Manning one. I don't know if you're going to pick it as well. But currently going for uh, $525,000 golf and dinner with Peyton in his hometown. Okay, now 18 holes with Peyton Manning might not be enough. Get me out there for 36 holes. Get a, as much beer as you can carry in your hands. I think that would just be absolutely awesome. Get Peyton where he's nice and comfortable on a course where he's nice and comfortable. I think that would be so much fun. I would have endless questions. I, I would want endless stories to be able to pick his brain about football about locker rooms, about the X's and O's, everything about it. Um, he's just one of the more interesting people, I think, uh, in all, like in sports. So, and, and the most fun too. I think that would be great. I'm definitely going with that golf with Peyton Manning. I like that pick, and I actually didn't have that pick on there because I thought, you know what, Pat might want to take this one, and I, <laughs> and I think I could find a couple more cool ones. My second pick in this all-in auction draft, the Turks and Caicos vacation with Deshaun Jackson, Pat. That sounded very, very intriguing to me. I just think Deshaun Jackson, great character. Who wouldn't want to kick their feet up on the beach and have a nice little Mai Tai with Deshaun Jackson? We'll be able to pick his brain on what is going on a decade of experience in the NFL. Would love to know what was going through his mind on that beautiful punt return, the famous one against the Giants about 10 years ago. And then it's just who doesn't love the beautiful islands of Turks and Caicos? All expenses paid. 
You get to just roam around the islands that were once inhabited by the Spanish pirates, raiding all those treasure ships. It sounds beautiful to me, man. That's my number two pick. What do you got? Yeah, dude, I um I don't want to pick golf again. I was just I didn't even see this on the first one I'm going on, but I'm going with write a joke for the SNL um weekend recap. That did pique my be, interest. That one was cool. That would be awesome. I'm almost I'm pretty mad at myself. I didn't see that one earlier. I must have brushed right by it. I would have had a joke for you ready. I I'd probably pick like a Stefan bit. You think I'd be able to get Bill Hader out there? Would they let me like write one for him specifically? What are they going to tell you? It's, it's the all-in challenge. You just gave up, what, 30 grand to do this? What are they going to tell you? Right. No. Is Bill okay. Hader going to be like, no, I'm not going to do this charity thing because <laughs> I'm I'm too busy. Yeah, come on. You guilt, right. you get to, you, They can guilt Bill Hader into doing that. There we go. Yeah, yeah. All right. I like I like your way of thinking. I'm going with that. I'm definitely writing a joke for SNL, getting my writing career um, off, uh, get, getting it going. I can't, I can't wait. That's definitely – it should be my – that should be my number one right there. But it's my number two for now. All righty, number one pick for me has got to be assistant coach with Doc Rivers for an L.A. Clippers game. So you get to basically experience the life of an assistant coach with the L.A. Clippers. Me being a giant basketball fanatic and just loving the ins and outs of the game, I would love to just be a fly on the wall. And that's essentially what you would be for all the morning meetings, all the shoot-around practices, going into the preparation in the locker room before the game, the halftime adjustments, the – the, the huddle and the timeout, all that stuff that everybody secretly wishes they could be in on. That would be my number one pick for me, Pat. What do you got? That's a great pick. You would, you would be great. You might get a, a permanent spot on that coaching staff. There you go. That, and all I'd have to pay is a cool 24. It's only at $24,000 right now. Only 10 bids. Come on. That's yeah, like you, one year at college and, and, and might be the same value how they talk about Jonathan Simmons, right? From the Spurs, how he paid his 75 bucks to get a tryout or whatever. There you you all you had to do was pay your twenty four thousand dollars to get your uh, to get your first coaching gig. Why bet on someone else when you can bet on yourself, Pat? There you go. There you go. Okay, so um, in fear of being redundant, I'm going with playing golf with Charles Barkley in Philly. Okay, okay. so I think the only maybe the only personality better than Peyton. Oh, there's plenty better than Peyton, but the only one better being offered is Charles Barkley. I love the inside, the NBA on TNT. Those dudes are the best sports show going on television. And Charles is great. He's he's so unassuming, but he's so introspective. He's so um, just wholesome, understanding, and very funny. I mean, he would be so much fun, so entertaining out there. And just being able to watch him swing a golf club for however many hours while drinking some beers it would just be great entertainment endless amount of laughs i'm definitely going to play some golf with charles barkley if only i had uh the cash to pony up some beautiful stories would undoubtedly come out of that experience on the links in Philly. pat it was a lot of fun this week cruised through all three lanes on riding a three by three talk some winners and losers of the draft got through our uh are evergreen it's going to be a really evergreen list so throw this around to your friends the top three all-in auction items you can debate this with your buddies it's a good little topic and we also touched on the last dance as well thanks so much my man for coming on as always every single week we're continuing to plow through this coronavirus madness hopefully as we turn the calendar to may we can start getting some plans for some reopenings of some sports leagues but i'm having i'm having a lot of fun just going back in time, debating some old games, talking draft. Dude, we're, we're making it through, Pat, and it's been a lot of fun, buddy. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again on the next episode. Always a pleasure, my man, Russ. Take it easy now. There you go. All right, everybody. You, everybody, you have a great week. 
and continue to support the Ride in the 3x3 crew. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week, everybody.